Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Jonathan Boblik about his book, Universals in Comparative Morphology. The book shows that, far from being a domain in which anything goes, morphology actually exhibits some strikingly robust generalizations. In this interview, we outline the generalizations and their evidential basis, relating to the domain of comparatives and superlatives, and we go on to discuss apparent counterexamples, why the comparative should be contained within the superlative at an abstract cognitive level, and how similar generalizations can be found in domains as diverse as person marking and phenomenal case. I'm talking to Professor Jonathan Bobolik of the University of Connecticut about his book, Universals in Comparative Morphology. Jonathan, to start off with, could you tell us a bit about yourself, your background and your career? Sure. Um, I mean, I guess like most people, I stumbled into linguistics rather accidentally. I was an undergraduate uh, at McGill University in Montreal, Canada, uh, majoring in Soviet relations, uh, political science and Russian. And linguist, there was a linguistics course that, that fit my schedule. Uh, it was a one-hour course. And, you know, this is the way most linguists get into the field. I just sort of stumbled into it and discovered I liked it. Um, from there, I went on and did graduate school uh, after some time in Russia in between. Um, and I guess I ended up here. So what was it about morphology that drew you in? Funnily enough, morphology was actually the first course beyond introductory linguistics that I took as an undergrad. And I guess what I liked was just the, the sort of the puzzle aspect of it, looking at lots of languages, looking for patterns, trying to solve puzzles. So what about this particular book? What gave you the idea to start working on the topic of comparatives and superlatives? I don't really know, to tell you the truth, what started this off. I know that one thing that structured this book was a uh, change in my family situation. We had a small child, uh, and that meant that I didn't have large periods of time to work anymore. Uh, so I would find little bits of time now and again. Uh, I had this question. I made this observation for a couple of languages, the kinds of patterns that we'll talk about today. And um, I discovered that with having only an hour uh, in an evening to work over, over sort of on a regular basis, what I could do is pick up descriptive grammars off the shelves or through interlibrary loan uh, and look at a couple of grammars a day. And that's why I took on a project that, that had this large comparative uh, aspect to it. It's also a case where linguistic universals, the question of whether there are uh, patterns that hold of all languages, I've, in a sense, come back to the fore, or should be coming back to the fore in research. Uh, they were put aside for a while, a number of other questions came up, uh, but we now have much better access to large amounts of data, and lots of descriptive grammars through the web, for example. We can undertake these kinds of projects uh, much more easily. So that was certainly a draw to me, this, the idea that we should be looking at large-scale samples and looking for universal patterns in them. And this project gave me a chance to do that. So the book is structured around a few empirical generalizations that you've observed and tested. Three central ones, as it seems to me, of which the first one is the, the comparative superlative generalization. Could you give us an overview of that generalization? Right. So the generalization is very accessible, very easy to state. If you look at languages that have suppletion in adjectives, like English, for example, we have good and then instead of so we have big, bigger, a regular adjective, big, bigger, biggest. Uh, and then we have, instead of good, good, or goodest, we have good, better, best. Right? And um, you think of this as sort of the most irregular kind of patterning that you can find. And what we find is that there is there's regularities of patterning that occur in language after language. So the comparative superlative generalization 
is the generalization that if you start with good and the comparative is better, then the superlative is going to be built on the comparative or built on the root of the comparative. So you get good, better, best, and not good, better, goodest. I mean, in and of itself, that's just an accidental, weird historical fact of English. Something changed, well, of Germanic. Something changed, whatever, 1,000, 1,500 years ago, uh, and that's the way it is. And the reason it's the way it is in English is simply because of the history of English. But the generalization is that that pattern, that if-then, that implicational universal, seems to be true essentially of all languages. There's a couple of apparent counterexamples, but it really seems to be that if you have some form, so like good, and you have suppletion for the comparative, the superlative will never go back to the basic root. It will never be built on the positive root again. And so I use letters to describe this. So A, B, so there's an A root and B is some totally different root, good and better. You get A, B, B, and A, B, C, which we'll come to, but never an A, B, A pattern. Mm. So it's this absence of ABA cross-linguistically that's the really striking thing. You mentioned a couple of apparent counterexamples, and you discuss these in the book as well. How, how can you go about dealing with those? Right, so this is... One of the interests in, in looking at universals in this way is the, the holy grail here being whether these guys are truly universals, exceptionalist universals, or whether they're statistical trends. So the counterexamples are extremely important. I look at, and, and we can talk later about how I do the counting here, but so we, I, I look at patterns of cognates instead of counting languages. And there's some 116 or so there, there are about uh, examples, uh, of which only a tiny handful, depending on how you count, maybe three or four, look like counterexamples. So if I were in a statistical field, I could say, ah, well, this is fine, the, the counterexamples are negligible. But as you know, when we're looking at the question of universal grammar, if what underlies these kinds of universals is something fundamental about, um, uh, about the human cognitive apparatus, whatever its origin, universal grammar, then the, the counterexamples become extremely important. We can't have people going around speaking in a way that is inco uh, theoretically inconsistent with universal grammar. So your question's spot on. How do we address the counterexamples? And it turns out that some of the counterexamples may, in fact, be artifacts of the description. So Karelian is one. Uh, it's in the published, the only published description of Karelian that I have, the grammar asserts that for the quantifier meaning many or much, you get a pattern that is, instead of a good, better, best pattern, it's a good, better, uh, goodest pattern. So many and then more, and then manyest, if you will. And that's the kind of pattern that you predict shouldn't exist. So yeah, so that if, if this generalization is not just a statistical trend, then the theory that I develop is correct, then it shouldn't exist at all. Well, it turns out that if you look at this grammar, the preface of the grammar notes that there's 20 some odd, 27, I believe, different varieties of Karelian. They're all very closely related and all very similar. And so a research assistant of mine uh, happens to be from Karelia, and uh, spent part of a summer there for me interviewing Karelian speakers. And she wasn't able to find a single Karelian speaker who had this offending pattern, the many more manyest pattern. They all had different patterns, and many of them had, in fact, the expected pattern of many more most, with Karelian words, of course. And uh, sub somewhat subsequently, a Karelian dictionary came online, and that, of course, has the many more most pattern. So I'm not disputing the characterization of the data that's in the published generalized uh, in the published uh, description, 
But what I suspect is that that published description involves uh, variation from a few different sources. So it takes a few different speakers, collects together the forms that they accept. And I'm wagering that no individual speaker shows exclusively an ABA pattern, even though it is reported as such in the literature, that that report is actually a mix of various varieties, various dialects, if you will. Uh, so, in answer, how we address a counterexample, that's how I've addressed that counterexample. And obviously, this, this can be investigated further. So, that's an apparent counterexample right. that, upon closer examination, actually doesn't look like it constitutes a counterexample at all. Exactly right. Okay, so your second generalization, the second big generalization of the, of the book, is the synthetic superlative generalization. Could you explain that one for us? Sure. So this is um, uh, a related generalization that the uh, so synthetic analytic is traditional terminology for whether you have um, a morphological unit or a paraphrastic unit. So classic example in English, smart, smarter, that's a synthetic construction. It has an affix to express the comparative, uh, whereas the analytic form, uh, uh, say for intelligent, we don't get intelligent or we get uh, more intelligent. So it turns out there's lots of languages that have only um, uh, analytic constructions for the comparative. The only way to make a comparative is with a word meaning more. There's no affix for it. It turns out that in no language that uses exclusively paraphrastic forms for the comparative do you find affixal forms for the superlative. So you never find language-wide a pattern like long, more long, and then longest. And why that's interesting is I claim that it has the same, the, the, the theoretical mechanisms that underline the first generalization we talked about, the comparative superlative generalization, the uh, same uh, mechanisms underlie the explanation of this generalization. Let's talk briefly about those mechanisms then, or, or even not so briefly, because it's crucial for your accounts to get these generalizations to fall out that you adopt this version of distributed morphology. Could you explain that framework? Right. Okay. So um, we'll start with a bit of background in this. The the the, the two key pieces of this uh, of this framework that are relevant to the discussion uh, are that it is a or the let's say the one key piece is that it's a, a realizational framework. That, what that means is that we posit an abstract morphological structure stated not in terms of the actual exponents, the actual forms you see but stated in terms of the, um, a hierarchical structure to the features. So we know words have internal structure. Longer has two pieces. There's the long piece and there's the ER piece. What turns out to be key to understanding the generalizations we've just talked about is the claim that that structure, the adjective followed by a, a piece, the abstract piece uh, ER or the abstract piece comparative, that that structure is formed prior to the rules that assign phonological forms to the affixes or to the, the various morphemes. And that's obviously controversial. There's many theories that reject that. Many theoretical frameworks say, no, what we have is words. The basic unit of computation is words, or the basic unit of computation is the morphemes in the traditional sense of pairings of sound and meaning. Distributed morphology distributes the work of morphology across various parts of the derivation. There's a part that deals with the abstract entities and generates the structure. And then there's a separate part that comes later that assigns phonological form to that. So that turns out to be key for the, uh, let's go back to the comparative superlative generalization, the good, better, goodest, the absence of good, better, goodest, and the, and the existence of good, better, best, or bad, worse, worst. 
the central claim here, the central, the two central uh, hypotheses are one that superlatives are always built on top of comparatives. That even though it doesn't look like it in English, in English it looks like what you do is you add the est to an adjective, you get long longest, right? What you really have inside there is a hidden comparative, and that's there historically. We know that, but um, the the claim is that that's there synchronically. That the the superlative is built from the comparative. So it's really at an abstract level, if you will, longer est. And in lots of languages, there's a discussion of this in the book, that's transparent and you see it overtly. Okay, so you have this hypothesis, I call it the containment hypothesis, that the superlative properly contains the comparative in all languages, always, whenever there is a superlative and a comparative. Okay, and I have a reason for that, but we'll say that's there. If that's there and you combine that with the distributed morphology assumption, that um, there are rules, rules of exponents, DM, we call them vocabulary insertion rules, it's the same thing. These are rules that, that, that map, that relate an abstract feature structure to the actual forms that exponent, the actual morphemes we hear, the phonological pieces. If those are rules, then one thing that we know about rules, and we've known basically forever, is that um, that when two rules can apply to a structure, when there's a competition, you get an ordering called the elsewhere order, elsewhere ordering, uh, where the more uh, more specific rule will bleed or block a more general rule. Okay, what does that mean? We put these two pieces together, and we find that so for a normal adjective, you get long, longer, longest, big, bigger, biggest. There's a rule that spells out the root as long or as big or whatever. But in the case of suppletion, there's two competing rules. There's two rules that can spell out that root. There's a rule that can spell out, let's say, good, better. There's a rule that pronounces the root meaning good, the adjectival root as good. And there's a rule that pronounces the root meaning good as bad or bad in the environment of the comparative. Right? So we've got two rules here that are in competition. One of these applies in a narrower domain, namely just the comparative, and the other applies more broadly. So good is the default rule, and we see that, for example, in nominalizations and goodness and things like this. So, okay, bringing those two things together, uh, because DM uh, treats these as rules, the elsewhere condition says if two rules are in competition, the most specific rule that will fit that context will win. Now, if the superlative properly contains the comparative, if the superlative always contains the comparative, when you're competing between the uh, the plane, the positive, the plane root, the default form good, and the rule that spells out good as bet in the environment of the comparative, the superlative is a special case of the comparative. So the, the rule that applies in the comparative will automatically spread to the superlative. So you'll get good, better, best. There's no way to derive good, better, goodest. Why not? Because the rule that spells out the root as good can't apply in the superlative. It's blocked by the comparative rule. That's really all there is to the theory. I mean, there's a whole book, but that's really all there is to it. But that only works uh, in a framework in which the rules are, are governed by competition, independent. So there must be a structure, a structure in which the superlative contains the comparative that is independent of and prior to the assignment of phonological form to the various pieces. So you couldn't have a rule, for instance, that said, spell out the root in a certain way when there's a superlative morpheme there. That's blocked. Well, okay, so it gets a little bit more complicated. Um, so you can have a rule that spells out uh, the root and the comparative together 
in the environment of the superlative. And the reason for that is, so let's go back to the elsewhere condition for a second. The elsewhere condition says you use the most specific uh, rule that fits the context. So I was giving you examples with exactly two, uh, two alternations and three contexts. So there's the positive, the regular form of the adjective, good. There's the comparative, better. There's the superlative, best. And what we see is that if you've got a comparative, a suppletive comparative, that will extend to the superlative because it's the, the better fit for the superlative context. However, it is possible, Latin is a case, Welsh is a case, since we're about uh, the UK, uh, where you have three different forms. So you can have three different rules applying. So in Latin, you get bonus, melior, optimus. That's good, better, best. Why? Why can you have three? Why doesn't melior extend to the superlative and give you melissimus or something for best? Well, the reason is because there's a third rule, an even more specific rule, that's limited to the superlative. So the, again, the elsewhere condition shows its head, and what we really should have said is that the most specific rule that fits the context wins, the, the, the suppletive form for the comparative will automatically extend to the superlative unless it's blocked by an even more specific rule, the one that would apply in the superlative. So you can get the, the three-way pattern, going back to letters, an ABC pattern, and you can get an ABB pattern, which is most of what you find. What you can't get is an ABA pattern. All right, so let's now talk about the evidential basis for your generalizations here. So you mentioned earlier on that you count languages in a very specific way. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so one of the things that, that ends up being frustrating about doing this kind of work, we like to say, okay, let's, you know, there's 7,000 languages spoken in the world today. Uh, you'd think, okay, you can just take a sample, control for aerial effects, control for genetic relationships, nice broad sample, and, and, get, the, uh, uh, and get some sample where you can get some result and count them. Uh, but it turns out that the morphology of comparison and superlatives, not all languages have, in fact, very few languages, have affixal comparatives and superlatives of the form that we're used to from English, German, and languages of this sort. Um, and in addition, suppletion. Almost all languages have suppletion somewhere, but it's a tiny part of their grammars. And uh, the confluence of having suppletion in adjectival gradation and morphological forms for comparatives and superlatives, the stuff you need to test these predictions, turns out to be sort of aerially concentrated. It's basically uh, Europe, the Indo-European languages, and their closest neighbors, Finno-Ugric, Kartvelian, Basque, of course, uh, and a variety of languages around there. Outside of this, it's not that the patterns are rare, the ingredients you need to test the predictions are rare. Either there's no morphological comparatives and superlatives, or there's no suppletion and adjectival uh, gradation, or neither. Well, that creates a problem, right? So the problem is English has good, better, best. German has gut, besser, best. So the form is best again as well, right? Do we count that as two data points or as one data point? If we're studying, you know, if we're thinking about universal grammar uh, and constraint, universal grammar is constraining possible grammars and in particular possible linguistic changes, um, then that's just one data point. As I alluded to earlier, I believe that at some point in the history of Germanic, whatever it was that had existed underwent a change and the pattern good, better, best or whatever the you know, proto-Germanic version of that was arose. And then everything that's left, so, you know, from all of Scandinavia, all of uh, Northern Europe, South Africa with Afrikaans, English across the world, all of us saying good, better, best, or some version of that, are all using, in effect, the same single data point. So 
when I started this, I kept track, of course, uh, counting languages, but that turns out just to be a bad way to do this. It's, it's not informative. It's counting the wrong things. The data points are not independent of one another. So you can't count German and English twice because they're right. essentially the same thing. They are truly the same thing, and therefore it would be it would be a category mistake to count them twice. It's also useful, of course, because then you don't have to ask questions about do Old English, Middle English, Modern English, Early Modern English, how many languages are there, or uh, Norwegian and, and Swedish, one language, two, three, four, many. Uh, some parts of the world, this is extremely controversial, right? Yeah. So what I count instead uh, is cognate patterns, so uh, cognate triples, in fact. So uh, the good, better, best, and any language, so any Germanic language that has a, uh, all three positions cognate with good, better, best, that turns out to be a single data point, as we just discussed. So that counts as one. I gave the number 116 earlier. That's one of the 116 patterns, no matter how many languages that represents. By contrast, the example I give in the book, um, in, in Slavic, uh, we know that closely related languages will differ in the, so again, if you think of this as a triple with the, the positive, the comparative, and the superlative, um, they'll differ in one or more members of that, even among closely related languages. So the um, old Slavic root for good is dobar, or some version of that, dobri, dobr, etc. Um, and that means good, and it suppletes in most modern Slavic languages, but you get different uh, roots for the comparative. You get bolje, historically meaning big, meaning better in some languages. So you get dobar, bolje, najbolje. And then in others, you get dobar, lepše, najlepše. So you get a total, you, you get the shared positive root, but differences in the comparative and the superlative. So I count those as separate triples because each of those, when I count cognate triples, is a proxy for um, uh, linguistic changes, historical changes. And that's what we're really interested in here. Because if there is a universal grammar, if universal grammar is truly that there are cognitive constraints on possible grammatical representations on possible grammars, so central thesis in the book, um, then it must be that this plays out as constraints on, on linguistic change. Basically, a you can't get there from here kind of model. Uh, and that means that what we want to do is count examples of linguistic change and ask how many of them change, in what ways do they change, and how many of these yield a pattern that I've alleged should not be derivable. And the answer I contend, once you look at the, the counterexamples and, and find an alternative explanation, as we did for Karelian, is zero. That you count, there's 116 distinct, distinct triples that we find across the world's languages. Um, and essentially none of them, again, once you, put, uh, once you look at the alleged counterexamples, none of them are convincing examples of a change that yields a pattern that should not be derivable, and that, of course, supports the theory that it's impossible. So you mentioned that there's an aerial skew here, and that most of the languages with the right kind of suppletion uh, and also the morphological superlative, that combination tends to be found in Europe, and I think you mentioned in the book Cherokee as well, as yes. an example of that. Why do you think that is? Is, it just, is that just coincidence? Uh, yes. I mean, the short answer is yes. So the slightly longer answer, I assume you want a slightly longer answer than that. Yes, please. Um, the ingredients that are needed for this to arise are themselves unequally distributed across the world's languages. So uh, one of the things that I found surprising, though, in retrospect, shouldn't have uh, in embarking on this study 
is the variety in the way the world's languages express comparison. So there are, and uh, there have been prior studies of this, a uh, typological study by Leon Stassen is one of them. There are really, let's say, three major ways of expressing comparison in the world's languages. Uh, and so I'll give them to you with sort of English-like words because it's easier that way. There's the English type, right, where you have good, better, or long. Let's put suppletion aside for the moment. You have long, longer, longest. You have a morphological form or maybe an adverbial form, intelligent, more intelligent, most intelligent, where you mark the adjective in some way uh, to say, hey, I'm a comparative adjective. Um, but that's not the only, by, that's by far and away not the only way of making comparison. Roughly, let's say, a quarter of the world's languages use a construction where uh, instead of doing this, you use a verb meaning exceed or surpass. So you surpass me in being tall, or you are tall exceeding me, would be how you would have to say you are taller than me. There's no way of marking the adjective. You use this paraphrastic construction. And we can say that in English, but it's not the normal way, way of expressing comparison. So about a quarter of the world's languages use that. Let's call it an exceed comparative. Another quarter of the world's languages have no recognized, marked, comparative construction. You simply use a paraphrase, for example, you are tall and I am not. There's a juxtaposition, or you are tall and I am short, or language I work with in Kamchatka, Itelman, is of this sort. And so you say, okay, well, what happens if both people are tall? Well, then you say, he is very tall and he is tall, or he is tall and he is very tall. So you juxtapose two constructions with adjectives. But there's no formal comparative construction. Again, about a quarter of the world's languages do that. Interesting, totally side point, because I have this other side of, of my work, which is with uh, endangered languages. That particular mode of expressing comparison is itself in, endangered in the sense that most large languages, national languages, languages that are, uh, that are, that are safe, that are not endangered, don't use that mode of expressing the comparison. I have no idea why that is. But in any event, coming back to the main thread, um, so uh, we've just noted that uh, half the world's languages, roughly, don't have any marking of the adjective, don't have a comparative construction on the model of the Indo-European comparative construction. If they don't have a comparative construction, they're not going to have suppletive comparatives. By and large, they're not going to have suppletive comparatives because there's no basis for it. There's no grammatical basis for having a root that changes in the environment of a comparative marker, because there is no comparative marker. Now, there are reports of some African languages, I mentioned this somewhere in the book, uh, that have um, uh, apparently suppletive verbs, like verbs meaning be taller than and stuff. These are rare and interesting things, uh, but a separate phenomenon from what we're talking about. And in all of these languages, as far as I know, you can use the regular comparative construction with non-suppletive adjectives. The point here is that you ask why, if, if I have any sense of why it is the case that there is an aerial skew to the constructions of interest, to the phenomena of interest, namely suppletive comparatives, well, that itself is derivative of a prior skew, which is that typologically languages fall into these patterns as to how they express comparison, and many, many, many languages simply don't use, don't have comparative morphology, they don't have a comparative marker that can trigger suppletion. So they're out of the picture already. Moreover, when we then restrict it even further, even among the languages that don't use an exceed construction and don't use a conjoined comparative construction, uh, an extremely common way of expressing comparison is with no mark on the adjective at all. 
So Japanese works this way. Uh, many familiar languages work this way. Hindi works this way. You simply use the adjective. You can optionally reinforce it with an adverb, but you just use the adjective and then a comparative phrase, some kind of from phrase. So you say, I am tall from you, and that's how you say, I am taller than you. Again, something that turns out to be a fact, another of the generalizations that I, that I uncover in the book, is that you only get suppletion if there is a morphological trigger for suppletion. So if there's an affix on the, on the adjective, uh, it could be covert, could be null, but if there's an affix on the adjective, that can trigger suppletion. But you don't get suppletion triggered by uh, another word, by a word that's outside of the word in which, with some exceptions, the adjective that undergoes suppletion. So there's a locality condition on the tr between the trigger of suppletion and the undergoer of suppletion. So this is the uh, root suppletion generalization. Correct, yes. This is the root suppletion generalization that you only get root suppletion uh, if the trigger is sufficiently local to it. So by local, I mean more or less in the same word, and I'll, I'll elaborate on that in a second. Uh, so more or less in the same word. So again, even among the, la the languages that have a recognized comparative construction, if, they, if the comparative construction is always paraphrastic, by the root suppletion generalization, they can't have uh, suppletion. They won't find uh, uh, suppletion as a means of, uh, in the comparative. So the, um, uh, that restricts the class of relevant languages further still. So ultimately... Remember I told you the short answer was, yes, it's accidental that this has a geographic skew. Uh, there's the long answer, but the long answer, its content is still the same. Yes, it's accidental that there's a geographic skew. It's just a coincidence, but it's a coincidence in the sense that it's the product of a number of other accidental distributions. That you, own, you can only get comparative suppletion if a variety of factors conspire together. You have to have morphological comparatives again, by the root suppletion generalization. You have to have a comparative construction, and moreover, that comparative construction has to allow at least some of these to be morphological, uh, that is, affixal. So let me come back, right? I said I was, there was a piece that I wanted to come back to, uh, the locality condition. So if I may, the, the, um, uh, the root suppletion generalization is the observation that you never get a pattern that says, so for example, um, so you get... Um, Good, better, right? This is a suppletive pattern, and you see the ER on better. That's the comparative ER. You get good, better. But alongside, say, intelligent, more intelligent, you don't get suppletion that obligatorily retains the comparative marker. What that would look like is a pattern like good, more, bet, where you change the adjective by suppletion, but obligatorily retain the comparative marker. And that doesn't happen. That doesn't exist. So... Um, that's the root suppletion generalization, and I contend that the, the, there's a locality condition, as I said, that the trigger and the, the undergoer of suppletion, the root undergoing suppletion, have to be local. And I said this in sort of general terms as if they have to be in the same word. But in the book, I actually propose something, as you know, uh, more uh, specific, more narrow. I say they can't be uh, separated by a phrase boundary, okay, by an XP boundary. So for the case of the adjectives... Those two appear to be roughly equivalent. So in a um, paraphrastic comparative, where the more is a separate word, there's an XP boundary, the maximal projection of the adjective between more and intelligent, and that's why you can't get this more bent pattern. And there's languages that alternate. In the book, I give um, Greek, so in modern Greek, the adjective kakos, meaning bad, has a suppletive comparative, heroteros, 
So that's the cock piece becomes hero in the environment of the comparative. But Greek uh, allows an alternation, a free alternation between paraphrastic and um, uh, morphological comparatives. So you can basically you can say smarter or more smart. And if you use the uh, the morphological comparative, then you must have suppletion because this goes back to the elsewhere condition. There's a rule that says the for, the form meaning bad is pronounced hero in the environment of the comparative. And that bleeds the regular, the default form of the root. So that's what you get in the morphological comparative. But under this locality condition, if you choose to use the form, the paraphrastic comparative, the analytic comparative, the more X version, then the locality condition kicks in. It blocks the suppletive root from occurring, and you get pio more, pio kakos. So you get exactly what's predicted. Now, after writing the book, uh, I've been working with uh, a colleague in Arizona, Heidi Harley, who is also, we're looking at suppletion, was also looking at suppletion, and she's looking at verbal suppletion for participant numbers. So there's a cases where the subject or the object of the verb, the number, singular, plural, determines suppletion of the verb root. And the interesting thing is, the way this appears to play out is exactly as predicted by the syntactic version of the locality condition that I give in the book, the one that says that the trigger and the undergoer of suppletion cannot be separated by a phrasal boundary. What makes this really interesting is that the cases that we're looking at with Heidi are ones where there is nothing. It's not word internal. There is no affix triggering suppletion. Rather, it's an argument that is sufficiently local to the, syntactically local to the verb, in a particular way to be defined, that can trigger suppletion, and arguments that are not local can't trigger suppletion. So that was, that was an exciting piece that goes beyond what's in the book, but reinforces exactly the kind of mechanism that, we, that I propose in the book uh, for dealing with, in, in this particular case, the root suppletion generalization. Another chapter mentions quantifiers. Do you think those should be treated like adjectives with respect to the generalizations that you mentioned? Yes. I'll, I'll give you the, again, short answer, long answer. Short answer is yes. The yes here is, is that they appear to be. Uh, they appear to be, uh, obey the generalizations, and that's why I was worried about Karelian. That's why I sent somebody to Karelia to look for the, the elusive Karelian quantifier superlative. They appear to obey the same generalizations. If the account I've given, if I exclude all other possibilities, and that's the only account for the absence of ABA patterns, the good, better, good is type patterns, if the more, so many, more, and then you get most and not many as shows the same kind of pattern, then they better fall under the same account, right? They, they, um, uh, the nature of the theory is such that they, they should fall under the same account, so they should be treated the same way. Mm. I don't have a deep answer as to why quantifiers should, be, should have the same kind of structural uh, properties as adjectives. Um, in many theories, quantifiers can be determiners. They aren't adjectives. Uh, they have a different type. Um, so it's not a priori clear that they should fall in that way. Just they seem to. So you're right. I mentioned it in the book, and I, I struggle with this a little bit uh, in the sense that it appears that they work that way, uh, but I don't know exactly why. But that's an empirical finding, which is quite exciting for theories to try and explain. Right. And it's also, um, so there's, recently there's been a flurry of work um, on the meaning of most, 
right? There is this tradition, uh, generalized quantifier theory, which gives you uh, quite powerful tools for writing the semantics of quantifiers, of determiner quantifiers. And most of the literature, no pun intended, has not um, has not decomposed these things. So it treats most as an entity that children have to learn, and it has a particular complex meaning associated with it. There's a lexical entry for most, and it has some meaning. Um, and if I'm right, that's impossible. Most has to be internally complex. It has to have a, a quantifier piece, much or many, and a comparative piece, and then a superlative piece. It has to be built from all of these pieces. In the back of all of this, a while ago, 20 minutes or so ago, I made the claim that in all languages, superlatives always contain the comparative. That stands in the back and underlies all of this. That then extends to the quantifiers as well. It must be the case that no language can have a simple quantifier piece that means most. What's exciting, and I, I'm not the person to comment on this because I don't actually work uh, in the formal semantics, but um, recent uh, uh, studies on the formal semantics of most, so particular work by Moth and Hackel, and now also Anna Sabolci, uh, have been arguing that in fact most does need to decompose into at least some of these pieces. So there's an intriguing convergence there. The, the morphological perspective tells me that these kinds of quantifiers with superlative-like meanings can't be simple lexical entries. They can't be words that we learn. Uh, they have to have this complex internal structure, which is forced upon me by, the, by, the mor- by these weird morphological patterns of suppletion. And the semanticists are beginning to come around to say as well that, that these words, that their semantics is actually compositional, that there is an internal decomposition of these things such that they're, they're, the meaning of the whole is in fact derived from the meaning of the parts. So this is an area in which morphological investigations and semantic investigations are heading in the same direction. Yes, yes. And it's um, something that's happened for the last uh, number of years, I think, is is that a number of semanticists have gotten interested in morphology as well. So composition, semantic compositionality below the word. Philippe Schlenka was one of the first to use the term morphosemantics for these kinds of investigations that fall together. Mm. Another extension of the basic idea that you undertake in chapter six of the book is to change of state verbs. Could you tell us what's going on with them? Yeah, these are fun, right? Uh, so we, we get this general pattern, which we've talked about the good, better, best pattern, that there's no good, better, goodest pattern, that you never go back. The, the star ABA, that the ABA is on a test, you never go back to the positive form. That turns out to also be robust. So at the beginning of this discussion, we talked about the comparative superlative generalization that says if the uh, comparative of an adjective is suppletive, then the corresponding superlative will also be suppletive. That's why you get the good, better, um, best, and not good, better, goodest. There seems to be a very robust parallel generalization with verbs. So we have this verb in English, to better, right, to better your opponent. You get uh, good, the comparative is better, the corresponding verb is to better, not to good. You don't good your opponent. Um, and that's not a very productive, so not a particularly convincing example. But uh, when you look at other languages, or for example, in English with worse, you have uh, bad, you have the comparative worse, not badder, and then you have the verb to worsen. Right? The weather worsened, not the weather battened. Uh, that occurs in sort of humorous examples on the web. You can find things like journalistic standards battening. <laughs> 
But in general, that verb doesn't exist. You use the comparative form again. And that seems to be largely true. Now, here there are some counterexamples that I can't simply dismiss the way I dismissed Karelia. And there seem to be some more convincing counterexamples. But it's um, an extremely robust, a surprisingly robust generalization. And again, that becomes very interesting because if the, if the, the proper account of the, good, bet, the absence of good, better, goodest is that the superlative properly contains the comparative, then if we do, or some enterprising graduate student comes along and, and does manage to get rid of all of the apparent counterexamples for the verbal analog of this, the bad, worse, worsen, and not bad, worse, badden, uh, then we need to conclude, in contrast to a lot of previous literature, that the um, deadjectival change of state verbs must be built on top of the comparative and can't be built on top of the, of the positive. If they could be built on top of the, the positive, you should have two verbs, a verb worsen and a verb badden. The verb worsen meaning to get worse and the verb badden meaning to get bad. Certainly in paraphrases, you can do this. You can say it became bad or it became worse. That's it. Both meanings are possible. So it's not a truly semantic generalization. It's a morphological generalization, which, if I'm right, is a generalization about structure. The verb stuff then ended up being fun because it, unlike the adjectival stuff where you can look up in most grammars what the comparative and superlative forms are, it required a little bit more digging to find the verbs. And there's a lot of apparent counterexamples on the web that you can uh, then look into more detail. And I, again, as I said, many of the apparent counterexamples fall, like the journalistic standards badening, but uh, uh, there's a residue that's left. So if I can move on to a big picture question, underlying all of your accounts of the generalizations so far has been this containment hypothesis, the idea that the superlative, the representation of the superlative, contains the comparative as well as the root. Now, why do you think this holds? What does it follow from? Right, so this is then the... The question that brings this to another level, uh, what's behind all of this? So we, we have a, it sounds like it's, it's theoretical, but it's actually an empirical claim here that this happens to be true, that the superlative always contains the comparative. Uh, so the, the deeper question about why, I don't have a, a specific answer, but I have a speculation about it. And the speculation I have um, is that the, um, I'll call it, a, I call it in the book, a complexity condition, that there are universal constraints on the packaging of meanings into morphemes. And so more specifically, that there is a, a maximum complexity on the meaning associated with a functional morpheme. So if we step back for a second and think about the meaning of the comparative, it has a semantic operator, it has a fairly rich meaning, Component is greater than, so more means, you know, greater than in terms of quantity or whatever. So the comparative has a very particular meaning. Now, what does the superlative mean? Well, in terms of meaning, the superlative contains the meaning of the comparative. It means more than all others. And in fact, this more than all others is more than just a convenient paraphrase. The majority of the world's languages, or at least the most common means of expressing the superlative numerically in this study, regardless of how the comparative is expressed, is by using the comparative alongside a universal quantifier. So, I mean, we can do this in English. You can say, uh, I don't know, some basketball player, Will Chamberlain is taller than all others, showing my age here. In general, you can also have this superlative form tallest. But many languages lack a dedicated superlative. They simply use a universal quantifier. Again, we go back to the semantics literature. We know that universal quantifiers are semantic operators. They are particularly semantically contentful elements. 
And so the thesis is going to be that the meaning pieces of a superlative and a comparative are both internally, or let me say that differently, the superlative in terms of its meaning contains the meaning of the comparative and contains in addition a universal quantifier or maybe a definiteness operator. That's another way of making superlatives. In any event, it contains an operator over and above the operator that is contained that, that defines the comparative. And so the thesis is UG simply doesn't allow you to package two operators into a single functional affixal head or a single functional head. Now, that's obviously vague, right? Um, You you want to go beyond this at some point and make this more precise. But the general idea is that what underlies the containment hypothesis is a semantic restriction of this sort. And, of course, in the the last chapter, what I do is I look at the... um, the possibility of having other evidence for this kind of complexity hypothesis. What would that mean? It would mean other evidence that says that certain logically possible combinations of meaning can't be packaged into a single functional head, but have to be distributed or split uh, into two functional heads, into two affixes in in the cases of affixes. Uh, So there should be, just like I argue that we find evidence that you, you never get, although it looks like you get, uh, on the surface, you never underlyingly get a true superlative as a single affix. There is no superlative affix per se that uh, is a minimal, undecomposable unit of, of sound and meaning that can go on to adjectives. It's always decomposed. We should find other examples of this sort, and we should find them in sort of relatively pre- predictable areas. This is where lesslessness comes in, the intriguingly right. named lesslessness generalization. Yeah, exactly right. So... Um, this generalization, and this is the one that is by far and away the most robust in the book. So there's, uh, regardless of how comparison is expressed in a language, there is no morphological analog to a less comparative. That's why I call it lesslessness. There is no less. All languages are lessless. They have no affix meaning less. So what does that mean? Uh, you get patterns. So smart-er, what does er mean? Er means the same as more. So you have more smart, smart-er, er means more. It's an affix that has exactly the same meaning as more, essentially. Um, but you can talk about someone being less smart, but there's no affix that you can make that would be analogous to smart, as smarter is to, to more smart. There is no affix that you can put that uh, expresses a comparison of inferiority. Now, that could be a fact of English, but it turns out to be entirely robust. So I looked at 300 some odd languages for the, uh, for the book. Not a single one has anything where you even have to squint and wonder if we have to jump through some theoretical hoops to re-describe it. There's no apparent counterexamples. There's nothing. It's a it's an extremely robust universal that no language has a morphological expression, affixal expression of, an, of a comparative of inferiority. That's very so, striking. Uh, so how does that follow from the complexity ideas? Right. So uh, there's an idea that's been around for a long time that adjectives that occur in pairs with polar antonyms, uh, so like tall and short, etc., um, that the negative member of the pair is in fact derived from the positive member with an additional piece of meaning that's like a negation, but not exactly a negation. Hein calls it a little operator. It's essentially a scalar reverser. So um, tall and short occur in a, in a relationship. They're a, a pair where they refer to the same scale, namely the height scale. And tall is the default neutral form on this scale. If you ask how tall is somebody, you're not asking 
you're not implying that they're going to be necessarily tall relative to the context. You're just asking for their position on the height scale. And if you compare that tall and taller, taller just means going up the height scale. Short just means the same scale, but going in the opposite direction in terms of measurement. So if someone is shorter, they're lower on the height scale. This is the, the polarity reversed member of the, of the scale. So the idea is, if you take that old idea, that um, these autonomous pairs involve an extra piece of meaning, a semantically contentful extra piece of meaning, namely this polarity reverser, short is then really tall plus this reversal. So it's reverse tall, in a sense. Yeah? Mm. Okay, so what does less mean? Well, less. The, if you just look at less and more for a moment, less is the polar antonym of more. So less is, is the comparative of few, right? It's fewer, basically, or smaller, or littler, yeah? So we know that the, the, uh, the comparative of inferiority is derived from the comparative of superiority by this polarity-reversing operator. Okay, so what happens if we try to put those things together? Well, the complexity hypothesis says, well, now we're dealing with two pieces again, right? We're dealing with the comparative, which has to be packaged on its own, and we're dealing with this polarity reversal operator, which, let's say, by the complexity hypothesis, just like the universal quantifier in superlatives, has to get packaged on its own. So there is the answer to the, the, the question of lesslessness, or at least step one of that answer, is to say a comparative of inferiority, less smart, is actually more reverse smart, more not, if you will, more not smart. It's got two semantically contentful pieces, and although they're pronounced as a single word, a single apparent morpheme in English less, uh, they don't have to be in German. It's weniger. It's the same meaning, and you see the comparative and the few piece in there. So what you get is this effect that, again, these have to be split into two pieces. Okay, so they got to be split into two pieces. Why can't they be pronounced as a single word, just like best or, or largest or longest is pronounced as a single word? And here the answer comes again. A while ago you asked, why distributed morphology? One of the hi central hypotheses about distributed morphology is a cyclicity hypothesis, that words are built from the inside out, from the, the lowest node up through the highest node. You start with the, the innermost part of the word in the derivation. So, again, we also talked about distributed morphology as being a realizational theory. The um, structure is there in terms of abstract features uh, that are then subject to phonological realization. So, if we take the complexity hypothesis and we take to get the complexity condition that restricts things to be um, restricts the packaging of meaning into into single functional heads, and we take the idea that a comparison of inferiority involves a polarity reverser, a negative head, and a comparative, then what happens if you take tall and the polarity reverser, put that together, and then put the comparative on top of that? That's the semantics of what less short should be, namely more not short. And if you do that paraphrastically, you can express it as less short, and that's totally fine. You get less short. Right? Or, sorry, less tall. I misspoke there. You've got tall, you've got the, the polarity reverser, and you've got the comparative. If you express that paraphrastically, that comes out as less tall. But if you want to express that affixly, if you want to express the whole thing inside a single word, you start at the bottom and you put together tall, and the polarity reverser. Well, as soon as you do that, you have that already defined in the grammar of English, namely short. That's the adjective short. So the first thing you have to do is uh, apply the polarity reverser to the adjective, and that gives you the polar antonym, namely short. And then you can apply the comparative to that. 
morphologically, uh, but what comes out is shorter. So it turns out I, I equip that, that no language has affixal expression of the comparative of inferiority, less tall. Well, in fact, we do. They're all over the place. It's just they're pronounced. They're hidden. They're pronounced as the positive comparative, uh, the comparative of superiority of the corresponding polar antonym. So the structure, because of the complexity hypothesis that says that uh, semantically contentful things have to be split across multiple functional heads, multiple affixes, if you will, the semantics that underlies what would become tall plus an affix meaning comparative of inferiority is necessarily pronounced when coupled with the simplicity hypothesis as shorter. So if that's right, and it's a bit sketchy, um, if that's right, then what we find is a second account that makes it, that appeals to exactly the same kinds of pieces of this complexity hypothesis that underlie the containment hypothesis. In effect, if you will, the same reasoning that leads to the, the universal generalization that the superlative is always built from the comparative also yields to the generalization, also underlies the generalization that we call lesslessness, that no language can have an affixal comparative of inferiority. Brilliant. So one final big question. There's still a certain trend in linguistics to say that there are no universals, and every time you see a cross-linguistic pattern, it's just the result of a stable engineering solution, and it doesn't follow from anything, anything deeper. What's your view on that perspective, and, and how do you think those people would deal with this kind of data? Yeah, well, it's false. I mean, it's false on the surface. Um, there's lots of robust, well-attested universal, in particular in morphology. And um, if you look at person generalizations, there's uh, other stuff I've worked on. Here I can speak to it because I've actually looked at the, at the work. We've known, so 60 years ago, people made suggestions. Uh, a guy named Vorheimer made a survey and there have been suggestions about uh, what the inventory of person marking, pronouns, agreement markers, etc., can be. And this is really semantically accessible, what the various persons are and their combinations. It's basically a four-way contrast. There's first person, second person. There's the inclusive, which is the combination of the two, and the third person. There are certain categories which are unattested. Uh, one of them is so a different, an inclusive-exclusive distinction in the second person. Plurality of hearers versus you and others not present. So I say you to you at the moment, I'm speaking to one person, but in a sense I'm speaking also to all the other people that will hear this when, when the recording is edited, etc. So there's the, a distinction between speaking to one person on behalf of others and speaking to a plurality of hearers at the same time. No language encodes that with a single morpheme, as a monomorphemic distinction. Now, that was noted 60 years ago. People have suggested counterexamples, and every single counterexample has fallen to closer scrutiny. It never shows the distinction that we, we uh, believe. And this is uh, the distinction under question. And this is known with samples of on the order of 250 to 400 languages that have been looked at for this. So this is, these are robust, robust universals. Moreover, are they engineering solutions? Well, they may be, but they're certainly the kinds of solutions, they're certainly not general aspects of cognition. It's certainly the case that we can conceive of these distinctions. We make use of these distinctions in everyday life and in, in uh, social interactions. So like the morphological distinction, the universals that I'm looking at in the book, there are a number of extremely robust patterns for which there is no 
obvious non-post hoc system external explanation. I, I don't know what people would say about these things. They, say, they seem not to, to look at them, and I'm not entirely sure why. The more interesting question to me it seems to me, I mean, it, I, I, don't, I don't see it as a reasonable question to ask, are there linguistic universals? There are. The more interesting question is, what is the explanation of the linguistic universals? Do they arise for system internal or system external reasons, domain-specific versus domain-general uh, mechanisms? And that's an interesting and real question, uh, and one that we can address when we put all the pieces on the table and look at the proposals, look at them in detail. For the ones that I'm looking at, uh, I looked at all of the literature that I can find. Various people have addressed bits and pieces of this, um, but there's no convincing domain general explanation at the kind of level of specificity that explains these phenomena. So there's a residue that needs to be accounted for, um, and that appear, it appears to be that UG is the best theory of this at the moment, that there are, uh, there are constraints. It's certainly... There's no cognitive constraint that blocks us from having a superlative. There's no obvious cognitive constraint that blocks us from having a monomorphemic superlative. We English speakers have thought we had one. Good semanticists have written meanings for the superlative. It's trivial to write a meaning for the superlative. Well, not trivial, but it's um, a good semanticist can do it. So if I'm right, and the facts seem to bear that out, that the superlative is always unnecessarily built from the comparative, then that's telling us something about uh, the cognitive representations of language, in particular specific to language. So that's exciting. We are where we were 60 years ago. Linguistics is a fundamental pillar of the cognitive sciences. It, the, by looking at linguistic patterns, we learn something about human cognition. Let me just add one little piece to this. One of the reasons that I looked in the book at uh, these large samples, or one of the interesting aspects of this, is that suppletion itself is a extremely irregular, weird corner of grammar. It's, it's what four items in English that under four adjectives that undergo suppletion: good, bad, many, and few. And that's it. That's basically it. And English is pretty rich. Many languages have one or no adjectives that undergo suppletion. And in fact, remember I said that. Um, you don't get the pattern good, better, goodest, and I say that's excluded for, for principal reasons. In English, you also don't get the ABC pattern, the Latin-like pattern, where we have bonus, melior, optimus. You don't get good, better, optist, or something of this sort, right? So, English, you have this very small set of data, where, and for any language, you have a very small set of data where there's all kinds of things that are missing, that are unattested. But some of these are missing for accidental reasons, and some of them are missing for principled reasons, I contend. You can only see that if you look at a large-scale sample. Again, counting cognates is a stand-in for counting uh, examples of uh, historical change. So what we're really looking at uh, is something that only becomes systematic, only becomes significant uh, over these large samples. Well, if that's right, um, then this is, and I use this term in the book, it's a, it's a twist, uh, if you will, on the poverty of stimulus argument, because no individual speaker, no individual child, is faced with a broad enough sample, which would necessarily be many, many languages, to understand which gaps are significant and which gaps are, are accidental. The key data only arises in these samples that are so broad that the data that's involved uh, is not accessible to any given speaker. So, 
this has got to be in, telling us something very interesting and much deeper than what a surface-oriented statistical general, generation of patterns from the input data could possibly tell us. The, the patterns are real, and the explanations are not the kinds of explanations that can arise from, from just looking at input data. There must be something deeper that's telling us something about cognition. Now, I contend that that's telling us something about UG. Put an alternative on the table and we can talk about the alternative. But it's definitely telling us something about cognitive representations. So time is running short, um, but just finally, now that you're done with comparatives, at least for the time being, with this book, what are you planning to do next? Do you have anything exciting lined up? Well, I'm excited by it because this is the kind of stuff that excites me. But uh, I'm working with a number of graduate students here right now looking at other patterns of simulation. If I'm right, these kinds of patterns, these kinds of gaps that say the ABA, the good, better, goodest, the absence of good, better, goodest patterns, tells us something about, um, uh, as I just said, cognitive structures, uh, limits on grammatical representations, uh, and in particular about containment. Uh, we should find that in other domains as well. We talked briefly about the verbs, which are related to the comparative, but what a group of us here are working on is looking at this in other domains as well. And so sneak preview, as yet unpublished, in case patterns. We f uh, for case patterns for pronouns, we find the same thing. So in English, you have the I, me, and then we'll say my, pretend it's the genitive. Right? This is a general Indo-European pattern that you have the E or you based first person singular, and then M-based non-nominative forms of that. So if you were to, to align these things as, say, nominative, accusative, obliques, all other cases, that's an area where we know suppletion exists. And in principle, we could ask these questions of, do we find ABA patterns? Do you find I, me, I's, or something of this sort? And we've looked at, I think we have a hundred and some odd languages in the database right now. And again, we find the absence of ABA patterns. If a pronoun shows suppletion, the pattern will always be that you start with the nominative, you go next to the other dependent case, let's say it's ergative or accusative. If there's suppletion there, no other case will ever be built for that pronoun uh, on the nominative stem. Uh, so again, I mean, this is a robust pattern that has, again, the property of being, for any given language, stated over such a small domain that it's not significant and only becomes significant in its cross-linguistic context. And as far as we know, check back in with us in a year, uh, as far as we know, that appears to be another exceptionalist pattern uh, across languages. Lots of languages fail to have uh, suppletion or English, you, 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 doesn't have suppletion, you, you, you are. But when there is suppletion, it fits exactly the kind of patterns that I'm talking about. And then we're looking at that in other domains as well. Okay, well, I look forward to seeing the written up version of that. But in the meantime, I'll just have to say thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much for listening and for being interested in the work. I've been talking to Jonathan Bobolik about his book, Universals in Comparative Morphology. This is George Walkton for New Books and Language, saying thank you for listening.